Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew I Don't Know, special quarantine coronavirus edition from lockdown here in the Bay Area, California, which for the podcast purposes doesn't really change much because it's online and always has been. But anyway, here we are continuing with our look at early Israeli history from 1948 to 1967. Now on December 7th, 1953, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion fulfilled the fantasy of mine. He marched into a cabinet meeting he didn't want to be in, threw his papers down on the table, screamed at everyone, that's it, I quit, and stormed out of the room. Of course, the meeting was his own, as he was, after all, in charge. But out of nowhere, Israel's first prime minister, the man who had led the Jewish community in Palestine for decades, one of the great decisive figures of Jewish history, up and quit, just like that. No one is really sure why, and he never said. Some thought that he was kind of burned out. He even suggested that he needed a break to rest and recuperate. But others thought that maybe he was just disappointed with the way the Israel of his imagination turned out. He had spent all those decades in the ferment of idealistic ecstasy over the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, with all its promises of reinvigorating Jewish life, building a socialist utopia, settling the land in peace and harmony, all, of course, with him firmly in charge. And in many ways, Israel had already made great strides, and he was its leader. But elsewhere, Ben-Gurion looked, he saw a nation in a constant state of armed conflict with its neighbors, struggling to feed and house a massively growing population, many of whom, far from embracing the lefty humanistic traditions of Europe, were instead from ancient communities in the Middle East and North Africa, with little experience with democracy. He faced political opposition and a struggling economy. In other words, he wasn't super jazzed about where things were at this moment. But he was still the incontrovertible leader of the nation. He may have thought to himself, what if I did something new and radical to shake Israelis out of their torpor? What if, by resigning, I then did something so far out of left field that the country would find inspiration in my example, recapture their pioneering spirit, and double down on their commitment to building this great project of Jewish renewal that we've started? While Ben-Gurion sought out his swashbuckling adventure, Israel was plunged into political confusion and a scandal that toppled the government. Less than two years after quitting the prime minister's office, Ben-Gurion found himself right back in his old chair. So that's today's episode of Jew I Don't Know, and I'm your host, Jason Harris. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. A small group of young Israelis were laboring under the hot sun of the Negev desert, attempting to scratch out a patch of arable soil, when they noticed a cloud of dust forming in the distance. In a few moments, a black car and two jeeps came puttering down the dirt road that passed for Israel's desert highway. As the group squinted in the sunlight, the convoy came to a stop in front of them. A dozen soldiers came off the jeeps, had a look around, and a moment later the door swung open on the dusty black car, and out into the middle of the desert nowhere stepped the Prime Minister of Israel himself. In 1952, several families decided to pull up stakes from their homes in the center of Israel and move out to the desert to begin a process of developing Israel's vast arid region for industry and settlements. They had gotten as far as throwing up a bunch of tents and some small buildings on the site when Ben-Gurion took notice while driving by in 1953. 
He stopped to talk with the residents who had called their small kibbutz, a collective farm, Stay Boker. Ben Gurion, still the prime minister then, returned home and wrote them a letter. I've never envied a person, nor the qualities of anyone or their property, he wrote, but when I visited Stay Boker, I was unable to stop being jealous of you. Why wouldn't I deserve to participate in a community like this? He had a request for them. Could he come live there? So here's the question. Would you vote to let him in? Here you are, a small group of pioneers living off the grid, trying to scratch out a living from the hard scrabble soil of the Negev desert. Do you really want to deal with the headache that comes from having the Prime Minister of Israel living with you? Not to mention that farming in the desert is a young person's game. It requires intensive hours of hard labor, and the kibbutz rules are that everyone works. Ben-Gurion is 67 years old. Are you really going to expect this old guy, the leader of the country, to work in a cowshed? On the other hand, are you really going to say no to David Ben-Gurion? All that attention might boost the success of the project and raise national awareness to what the pioneers were trying to achieve, developing the desert for Jewish settlement. By a majority vote of exactly one, Ben-Gurion was accepted to live at Steboker. Within two seconds of resigning as prime minister in December of 1953, he dashed down to the kibbutz to settle in. Despite certain changes necessitated by his arrival, such as the presence of bodyguards, Ben-Gurion insisted on being treated as any other member, including having regular work assignments. It turns out that he loved gardening and caring for the kibbutz's animals, with particular affinity for tending the sheep. I myself once visited a sheep farm in the Negev, not too far from Steboker, and I can totally understand this. Lambs are adorable. Anyway, for Ben-Gurion, the Negev desert represented renewal, and he hoped that the country would follow his example. We're going to make the desert bloom, was his slogan, and he imagined great masses of Jews moving to the desert to raise cities, develop farms and industry, and turn the whole place green. Meanwhile, back in the government, things were a little chaotic with his departure. Israel's foreign minister, Moshe Sharet, born in the Ukraine and one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, he took over as the nation's second prime minister. Sharet was a political moderate, an ally of Ben-Gurion's, but a very different personality. A highly educated, debonair, polyglot foreign minister, think of a somewhat stuffy and fastidious British diplomat stereotype and you've kind of got the picture. From the beginning of the state, Sharet had been focused on Israel's international affairs and had a lot of faith in building relationships with the United Nations, and especially the United States. Ben-Gurion was less enamored of this route. He generally felt that Israel, a small state, was largely on its own to take care of its security. He worried that Sharet's moderate inclinations weren't the right approach for Israel here in the mid-1950s. And that's because dark clouds of conflict were gathering on Israel's borders, most ominously, in Egypt. Okay, quick history of Egypt to catch us all up. First, aliens built the pyramids, but that knowledge was subsequently lost. Then there was the reign of the pharaohs for thousands of years. Then, I have absolutely no idea what happened between Cleopatra and the late 1800s, which is when Egypt became a British protectorate. It still had a constitutional monarchy, that is, a king. But in 1952, there was a revolution. 
partly because of the humiliation from having lost to the Israelis in the 1948 war, as well as corruption, scandal, and, of course, the king's dismissal of the people's concerns with, so let them eat pita. Okay, that was a cheap shot. But anyway. A group of nationalist army officers led the coup, overthrew the king, and installed themselves as leaders of what they declared was now the Arab Republic of Egypt. The main guy was Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser. For the next 20 years, Nasser will be Israel's chief nemesis in the Middle East, the ultimate bad guy who nevertheless became an Arab hero. He made it his mission to rectify the humiliation having lost the war in 1948 by destroying Israel, and his strategy was to achieve Arab unity based on this shared goal, with himself, of course, as its great unifying figure. He ultimately failed in what was an even bigger humiliation in 1967, but at this moment, in the mid-1950s, he had a vision of success. He began his efforts by calling for a new, hyperactive Arab nationalism, and he turbocharged that movement by setting his sights on claiming a strategic piece of real estate, the Suez Canal. The Suez Canal is the waterway linking the Mediterranean Sea and the Red Sea, which itself connects to the Indian Ocean, a crucial, essential, and strategic choke point for international shipping, trade, oil, and naval power. Whoever controls it controls a great deal. In order to guarantee the canal's neutrality, that is, that any ship of any nation could pass through, but really mostly to protect its own commercial and colonial interests, Britain maintained a military force in the canal zone, effectively controlling it. As part of the Egyptian revolution, Gamal Abdel Nasser demanded that Britain withdraw and that Egypt should have complete ownership of the canal. Britain agreed to negotiate. Now, if you're Israel, this is a most unwelcome development. With Egypt in control of the canal, they could cut off Israeli shipping at a time when Israel desperately needed a functioning economy. Second of all, Nasser had been using the Sinai Peninsula as a staging ground for Palestinian raids across the Israeli border, terrorist attacks that killed Israeli citizens. I'll be delving into that situation in a couple of weeks. The point is that from Israel's perspective, it looks very much like Nasser is building up to eventually go to war with Israel. Which he was, quite vocally. So Israel has a vested interest in keeping the British in control of the canal, and therefore in keeping the British military in place. Okay, so how do you do that? Well, Israeli intelligence had an idea. If Egypt appeared to be unstable, then Britain would have to keep its troops there to protect the canal. There was another factor, the United States. President Eisenhower generally supported Nasser's Egyptian nationalism because America believed that the ideology was keeping the communists out. That meant reducing the Soviet Union's influence. The reality was that Nasser was playing both sides of the Cold War and was starting to buy large quantities of weapons from the Soviets, which also greatly concerned Israel, so someone deep inside Israeli intelligence hatched a really bad idea. Secret agents would plant bombs inside Western civilian targets in Egypt, like movie theaters and restaurants, places owned and frequented by Brits, Americans, and ordinary Egyptians. The bombings would then be blamed on Arab militants, making the Egyptian government look weak and unstable, and Nasser unable to control violence in his own backyard. At this, the British would insist on staying to protect the canal. Like I said, terrible idea. But someone at the top of the pile, and we'll get into that, approved the plan. 
1954, Israeli intelligence activated a number of Egyptian Jewish sleeper agents they had already placed in Cairo, who had been running around gathering intelligence for several years. That's when the whole plan fell apart. Meanwhile, back at Steboker in the Negev desert, David Ben-Gurion, newly retired, was living his best life. He was surrounded by the cleansing heat of the desert, sweating out his tired bones working with the livestock. He was kicking back reading some of the hundreds of books he had dragged down there, and no doubt torturing his wife, Paula, who was none too happy about leaving their nice house in Tel Aviv for this hut in the middle of nowhere. But Ben-Gurion still delighted in having his finger on the strings of the Israeli state. Everyone from the new Prime Minister, Moshe Sharet, on down the ranks had to make the pilgrimage to stay Boker to consult with the old man. But more to the point, Ben-Gurion was focused on his passion project, making the desert bloom. Since time immemorial, the Promised Land desert has been both a draw and a repulsion for Jews. Denoting a place of both inspiration but also exile, promise but also danger, the Hebrew word for desert, midbar, is better translated as wilderness. From the Bible, the desert wilderness became a symbolic space, but when Israel was established, it also became a concrete physical space that needed to be guarded, defended, and in keeping with the Zionist ethos of the Israeli government, settled. Ben-Gurion considered the Negev desert essential to Israel's future. The state of Israel cannot tolerate the existence of a desert within it, he said. The desert, in fact, had to be destroyed in favor of greenery. Make the desert bloom, went his famous slogan, and in doing so he claimed, the creativity and the pioneer vigor of Israel shall be tested. It was a return to the roots of Zionism that drained the swamps in the north and built the cities in the sand dunes of the beach. His intention then, at the age of 67, to retire to a small desert outpost, was to galvanize the nation's youth with his inspirational example. He had been banging this drum for a while, but only his physical presence and example, he believed, would provide the tipping point for a mass movement of Israelis into the Negev to fulfill the Zionist vision of space and settlement. His fellow kibbutzniks often didn't know what to make of him. He insisted on being treated equally with everyone else in keeping with the socialist spirit of the kibbutz. But come on, he was the father of the nation. He took meals in the communal dining hall and kept to a regular work schedule. The kibbutz insisted on providing him a second hut for his extensive library, but he objected because no one else got that treatment. And of course, the prime minister abruptly resigning and moving out to the Negev attracted national attention, but it didn't change a lot of facts on the ground. It was a tough place to live, tough to travel around, obviously devoid of water and other creature comforts, and extremely very hot. Although there was plenty of room, Ben-Gurion's grand gesture didn't attract many Israelis to follow his example. Although the ensuing decades did bring the development of small cities and more infrastructure, most settlements in the Negev were narrowly focused on small-scale agriculture and livestock. Still today, the Negev covers 55% of Israel's territory, but only 5% of its population. In many ways, it remains a distant Zionist final frontier. But that's okay, because Ben-Gurion, in 1955, was about to find himself back in the hot seat.
Out in Cairo, the secret Israeli sabotage network went to work planting bombs around civilian targets in order to make Gamal Abdel Nasser look weak and ineffectual, which would keep the British military in the Suez Canal zone. Depending on how you look at it, they either did a great job or a terrible one. Not only did many of the bombs not go off, but not a single person was killed or even injured. What did happen is that one of the agents was himself injured, arrested, interrogated, and the network unraveled. Most were thrown in prison but later released in a prisoner exchange in the 1960s. Two, however, were hanged. The Israeli public quickly learned of the disaster and hailed the operatives as national heroes for the danger they had placed themselves in for so many years under cover in Egypt. They had arrived in Israel after its establishment only to turn right around and head back to their former homes in Egypt as spies for the Jewish state, an extraordinary act of courage and sacrifice. Of course, the Israeli public wasn't aware of this latest secret sabotage effort, but the Israeli government was. And as politicians do, the infighting and blame game began at once. The high command of the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, blamed the Minister of Defense, a man named Pinchas Lavon. Pinchas Lavon, in turn, blamed the IDF. Lavon claimed he didn't even know about the sabotage operation until it was all over. The IDF said he had approved the whole thing from the get-go. Prime Minister Moshe Shara didn't know whom to believe. He commissioned an official inquiry, led by a Supreme Court justice, to figure it all out. The result was inconclusive. The commission couldn't find hard evidence that Lavone engineered the operation, but they couldn't totally rule it out either. The ambiguity split the ruling left-wing Mapai party, which all these guys belong to. Remember that in Israeli politics, the parties rule everything. So the fact that the governing party's leaders were tearing each other apart wasn't good news. The acrimony between Pinchas Lavon and the IDF leadership got worse, and it seemed like everyone in the party was picking sides. Moshe Sharad had to act, and he chose to side with the military. He sacked Pinchas Lavon. He now needed a new Minister of Defense to oversee security policy, and perhaps suffering from a bit of sunstroke out there in the desert with no one joining him, David Ben-Gurion graciously stepped into the role. The Lavon Affair of February 1955, as it came to be known, dominated Israeli politics for years to come. Pinchas Lavon continued protesting his innocence, Ben-Gurion refused to believe him, and several new inquiries were launched. One of them discovered that one of the Israeli operatives had been spying for Egypt and probably blew the whole operation on purpose. More evidence was uncovered that Lavon had been set up as the fall guy. Every time an investigation concluded that Lavon was innocent and that Ben-Gurion's buddies in the military were at fault, Ben-Gurion would demand a new investigation. This dragged on into the 1960s, severely weakening the Mapai party. But Ben-Gurion just couldn't let it go. As 1955 dragged on, Moshe Sharet's government already looked bad from another controversy. The trial and defense of Rudolf Kastner the Mapai official who had been accused of collaboration with the Nazis, which I covered a few weeks ago. With the Lavon affair added to the scandal sheet, the government couldn't survive, and the right-wing opposition in the Knesset successfully brought about a vote of no confidence. New elections would have to be held, and in the meantime, Mapai needed a new leader and a replacement prime minister. Conveniently already back in government, David Ben-Gurion, with a coy refrain of, why who, moi? Less than two years after retiring to his desert hut, Ben-Gurion was right back in the prime minister's chair in November of 1955. 
slick move. I just love when Jew Out of No episodes come full circle. And just in time, too, for the dark clouds gathering over Egypt, we're starting to look like maybe war was coming. <laughs> Okay, so Ben Gurion didn't quite get the desert to bloom, but it's still, in my view, one of the best places to visit in Israel today. And it was also playing another important role at this time, security. By the middle of the 1950s, the Israeli public and its government had handed up to here with a constant stream of brutal terrorist attacks from both the Jordanian and Egyptian borders. Harsh retaliation wasn't helping much, and the harder Israel hit back, the more Arabs that died, the worse Israel looked, both to itself and on the international stage. And so begins the question that has bedeviled Israel ever since. How do you handle the terrorist menace? The music today is the great Israeli musician Idan Reichel, Talia Solan, and the Habiti Ensemble from Kibbutz Samar out in the desert. Next time, next time, stay in lockdown. Lehitrot, see you later.